turn in your Bibles or in your large print sheets to Revelation 6, verses 1. This is 1660, 1660, towards the very end of the Bible, book of Revelation. Page 1660, and then continuing on to 1661. Page 1660. Revelation chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 8. Listen. Listen to the word of God. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see! Another horse, fiery red, went out and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see! So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. My friends, this is now today the second sermon on this particular text, two-part series on this text, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, in which we see that the conquering Christ triumphantly brings in the kingdom through all kinds of adversity. The conquering Christ, Jesus, triumphantly brings in the kingdom through all kinds of troubles, adversity. You know, it has been said, it has been said that museums and history textbooks, because you all know I'm a history professor, It has been said that museums and history textbooks mostly focus on one thing, war. War. When I ask my students at the beginning of the semester, what what words come to mind when you think of history? And war is certainly one of them. And of course, these serve as markers in terms of history. But more than that, war is a theme throughout history, is it not? 
It is unusual to have peace. Did you know that? There are countless wars. We don't even hear about a lot of them. There are countless wars that are going on around the world all the time. Sometimes in places we may never have heard of. And of course, war here, first of all, we would say, would be the wars that men fight among themselves. The conflicts, the, the hatreds, the killings. But it's, there is also another war. That is the war that man fights against God because of his rebellion against him and by means of false worship. In a sense, we have both of those themes here, do we not? Because the, the hatred that is shown to God's people ultimately is a hatred, a hatred of God. It's hatred by these wicked people, not just for the people of God, but hatred ultimately for God. As Jesus said, you remember he said, don't be surprised when people persecute you. They hate me, therefore they're going to hate you. So the whole theme of war, and we see that here in Revelation chapter 6. Well, There's another side to mankind's wars. And we see it here in Revelation 6. You see, it is not just that men hate other men. And it is not merely that they hate God and therefore engage in warfare. But it is also true, listen to me carefully, it is also true that God goes on the war path against these rebels and humbles them and defeats them. And God does both directly and indirectly. We see pictured here in the first part of our text the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who himself rides on his white horse out of heaven. He himself is the one who is doing that. But he is also the one who sends out the other three horses. He is also the one who uses other means to bring about his judgments in the earth. Now last week we considered the white horse. We noted that the color white is a color of victory, like the Roman commanders in the the Roman Empire, who in their triumph would ride a white horse. And of course we saw the the notion of white throughout scripture then, the, the being dressed in white, the, those who are the overcomers, Revelation 3, verse 5, and Revelation 19, where the Lord Jesus, again, on the white horse, the white charger coming out of heaven, and also the 24 elders in heaven clothed in white, Revelation 4. But it is also the color of purity and righteousness, Revelation 3, verse 4, The remnant in Sardis had not soiled their garments so that they would walk with Christ in white. Revelation 6, Revelation 7, we see that the saints are clothed in white. And as we noted last week then, the meaning first of all is that the one whose reign is pictured, namely Jesus, the one who is victorious, is totally without spot or blemish. He is totally, he's the lamb. He's not only the lion, 
but he's the lamb who was slain and he was able to be slain for us because he is perfect and pure and righteous, no spot or blemish. But also notice that even in the midst of battle, he's not afraid of being clothed in white. Isn't that interesting? Last week we talked about the fact that he has a bow with him, the verse 2 of our text. He was sat on it, had a bow. And children, what do you use a bow to do to shoot with, obviously? We sang last week from Psalm 45 about the one who, who uh, uh, wields the bow and arrow to pierce the heart of the enemies of the king. And so we see here then the Lord going forth for his people's salvation. <clears throat> Indeed, the Lord sends forth convictions by means of his word, which are those convictions being like sharp arrows. <clears throat> Even as the word of God itself is described as a two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirits and of the joints and marrows, the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I've seen it in congregations. I've seen people be slain, as it were, by the word. And of course, we've all, all of us who have been converted have experienced that, have we not? We've been pierced to the heart because of our sin. We understand we are sinners. We understand that God is holy and righteous. We understand that we have no hope of this of another, the Lord Jesus. We are convicted of our sin and those, those convictions that are shot out, as it were, from his bow pierce right into us. But also... That bow is also used. The bow and arrows are also used in order for Christ to slay all of his enemies. The crown, of course, showing that Christ is king, king over all. We had in our adult lesson today a reminder that Caesar is not king. Jesus is king. And notice he went out, Jesus went out conquering and to conquer. And so in a direct way, Jesus is involved, but now he also is involved in an indirect way. He uses means. And now we come to the these last three of the four horses. The first one of these is the red horse. The red horse. It is it is red, but it's it's not just that. It's a it's like a burning, a fire. Matter of fact, in our translated here it says it says another horse fiery red. Okay, so that we know, we know what, there are different shades of red. We have maroon, we have all kinds of shades of red. So this is a fire engine red, okay? But it's not just that, but there's a sense of it, of it glowing almost, of it, of it burning. The word there is puros. You may have heard um, uh, pyrotechnics. That's a fancy word for fireworks, pyrotechnics, that's the fancy term, children, for fireworks. And so it's the same basic root there. So it's burning, it's fire. And of course the color itself implies what? Well, what liquid is red? It is blood. And it also implies, therefore, war. And that's exactly what we find here. 
Notice the description then of this fiery red horse. And the the effect was, verse 4, the effect uh, was that it was granted to take peace out of the earth so that they would slay, they would kill one another. And what was the means that is pictured here in terms of this? It was a great sword. Now this is a short, broad sword, probably similar to a machete. So think of a knife, uh, I don't know, foot and a half long or so in terms of the blade. Okay, machete, you may have seen pictures, maybe a, maybe a movie of someone cutting down in a jungle, cutting down stuff, right, cutting down the foliage. So that's the picture here. That's the type of, that's what is being portrayed here in this vision. That's what's being portrayed is that kind of a short, broad sword, which was given to him who sat on the horse. Now, many commentators, many Bible commentators, godly people, have taken this red horse and the rider to refer to warfare in general, mankind killing one another. And certainly, it is true that this is one of the ways by which Christ conquers and subdues his enemies. And furthermore, prevents the kingdom of darkness from being able to unite efficiently against God's kingdom. So we see throughout scripture, you know, the Psalm 2, the kings of the earth, you know, covenant together with each other against the Lord, against his Christ, and so forth. We find throughout history, the uh, Japan and Germany and Italy, you know, joining together as allies, as the Axis powers to fight against the allied forces against the United States and Great Britain and so forth. And so there, certainly, that's, that's often what happens. And yet, at the same time, as I say to my students, what would have happened if the Axis powers had won? They'd eventually fight among themselves. You know, they eventually would have fought among themselves, even if they had won World War II. And so, uh, all those things, by the way, are true. That Christ is the one who uses even warfare, even the general warfare of men against men, nations against nations, for his own purposes, including preventing the kingdom of darkness from being able to unite efficiently against God's kingdom. However, let me suggest that there's another way of looking at this. It appears from what I've been able to study is that the most likely the most likely thing that this red horse is referring to is not warfare in general in this particular text or this particular verse, but rather to religious persecution. It is a reference to religious persecution. Now notice that persecution always follows Christ bringing the gospel. This is what Jesus promised. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of, of false of wickedness against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You read the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, as the gospel goes forth, time after time after time, what happens? Riots break out. Persecution ensues. 
People like the Apostle Paul get thrown into prison, get thrown into jail. Christians get martyred like Stephen and others. And so it is, it, it, it's inevitable that persecution always follows the presentation of the gospel. We, the, the church always, almost always is in a, a period of persecution. Here in this country, we've not had a lot of persecution. We may be coming to that period, however. A parallel passage, by the way, Matthew 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, verse 34 seems to confirm this. He says, Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The other thing that I would note here is that the word, or one of the things to note, again, is that the word that is used here in terms of the killing is actually slaughter. Slaughter. This is not the ordinary term. Uh, This is not the ordinary term when John is indicating killing or warfare. And almost always, almost always, uh, in every other, in virtually every other place in John's writings, that word slaughter uh, refers, for example, to uh, the saints. Furthermore, in the opening of the fifth seal, which we will get to next week or two weeks from now, Lord willing, the opening of the fifth seal reveals those who have been slaughtered for the word of God as martyrs standing before the throne. So this again would lead us to believe that it was something particular in terms of religious persecution, in terms of being persecuted for being believers. And the final thing I would note here is that the immediate problem facing the believers was not warfare in general, but it was persecution for their faith. And so we see then this red horse and its rider being sent by God, being sent by God in terms of religious persecution. Thirdly, we see the black horse. Now, black, as you know, the color black is often associated with death. The particular reference, then, is to famine and its effects on the body. We see this in Job 30, Lamentations 4, Lamentations 5, and so you see then the the color black being associated with famine and the effects on the body. But this black horse, the the one who rides on it, he who sat on it, verse 5, had a pair of scales, balances in his hand. So again, children, you know, you can, uh, maybe you've seen, maybe you've gone to a a grocery store and you've seen a, a balance there. And so you put uh, the, uh, the tomatoes in it or whatever, and then they, you will see that it will come down for you know, a pound or two pounds or whatever it may be. And so this then, this one then, has a pair of balances or scales. And this is a symbol, this is a symbol of 
scarcity, of want, during which bread is measured out, is doled out by weight. Plentiful bread, we're in a time of famine, we're in a time of scarcity. We're in a time where there's no bread on the shelves, we would say today. The writer, you see, as he's writing, holds this balance in his hand as he as he rides, as he rides through the earth. Notice the cry from the center of the four living creatures, the cry out of the midst of these four living creatures, these cherubim, these powerful angels, from the midst of those four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarters of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So, first of all then, we note a quart of wheat or a chonix. It's a dry measure, approximately a quart. So you know about what a, what a quart, you know what a gallon is, you know what a quart is there, one fourth of that. One such measure would be enough for a day's provision. A denarius was about an ordinary soldier's pay for one day of being a soldier in the time of Tiberius. And thus, a person could buy enough barley for himself and his family or enough finer wheat for himself. Okay? So, three quarts of barley for a denarius, or if you want the finer wheat, you get just one-third of that, just a quart. But notice, also, don't harm the arm, the oil and the wine. So this was not an absolute famine, but it was a time of agricultural scarcity and distress. So while the poor could barely make it, could barely make it, the rich could still obtain their dainties. So the black horse riding with the scales. And then we come fourthly to the pale horse. And the color here is interesting. And we say you think pale, you think maybe a you know pastel or you know something like that. The word there actually is chloros. Maybe you know the word chlorine, like you go into a pool, a swimming pool, and your eyes sting a little because of the chlorine that's in the water, like Clorox. Chlorine and that's to, to keep the water from getting a lot of yucky stuff in it, right? That chloros, though, that is here, the chloros, it's a green color, but when used of flesh, when used of flesh, when this word chloros is used in terms of flesh, it means that greenish, sickly color that greenish, sickly color that can come. Sometimes you can see discoloration of flesh, maybe yellow, maybe green, the color of the corpse in decay, or the complexion extremely pale through disease. This horse then, this horse brings death. As a matter of fact, the name of the rider is Death. Now, you, I, I take it you wouldn't name a kid this, right? 
But here, this rider on this horse, picture that we have here, is called death. And Hades, or hell was following him. Hades, the place of the dead. Hades, the place that gathers the slain. And so death comes, and Hades thens, then follows. Notice the authority that is given to death and Hades. It was over a fourth, one quarter of the earth. That is, over a large portion of the world. But it doesn't say all of them, only over one fourth. God gives to this fourth horseman so much and no more. And here we see then the death. It wasn't just dying of old age. The death that is portrayed here is unnatural. Death, first of all, by the sword, to kill with the sword. And here the sword is Ramphaya, which is the long and heavy great sword, like Goliath's sword. Do you remember Goliath, who was killed by David? Remember the giant Goliath who was killed, and David is the one who who uh, killed him and then actually cut, took his own sword and, and cut off his head. This huge, big sword. We, if, we think of, um, uh, if we think of King Arthur and uh, the, um, the Knights of the Round Table, we think of Excalibur, which is that big, mighty sword that King Arthur had in legend. That's the picture. And this, of course, when... It's referring to this big, mighty sword. We would say this means war. This means war, the sword. But also hunger, famine, a very gentle kind of stress. This often accompanies warfare. Civilians many times are killed during war because they don't have enough food, because of the famine. And then death itself, or we would say pestilence. Today, we would call it a plague, such as the Black, the black Death. The bubonic plague was probably what afflicted the Philistines, First Samuel 5 through 7, when they had taken the Ark of the Covenant, um, and, um, and God judged them for that. Notice again, there's a close connection between famine and disease, between famine and pestilence, such as a plague. And then fourthly, not only is it in terms of sword, hunger, death, but by means of the beast of the earth. Beast of the earth. Wild beast. These beasts devour and tear to bits. First Kings 17.25 and other references. Now, I have two observations and then one very brief application. First observation is this. The Lord directed and continues to direct all of these distresses and calamities. He is sovereign over them. Now, this is what we know from Romans 8.28, where the Apostle Paul tells us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called 
according to his purpose. All things. Now, there are many unpleasant things we all deal with. Accidents. Disease. The loss of a loved one. The loss of a job. There are many things that everyone in this room can relate to or has experienced that are not pleasant. But the eyes of faith will see that it is the Lord that is sovereign over all of them and is directing all those things, is weaving them all together according to his power, according to his infinite knowledge, according to his wisdom, according to his love, according to his justice. He's weaving all of those things together for the good of those who are his people, those who love God, those who are the elect, those who are the called according to his purpose. And perhaps even more specifically in this regard, I'm reminded of Isaiah 45, Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah 45, we read in verse 5 and following, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil or calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. When I preached five days after the falling of the tower, the World Trade Center, some of y'all are too young to remember the World Trade Center attacks, 9-11-2001. I preached five days after that when I was pastoring a church in Virginia. The title of the sermon was, Where Was God Last Tuesday? Based on Isaiah 45. I was able to apply that in terms of the fact God is the one who is sovereign over all these things. God is the one who is judging. God is the one who is using all these events for his own glory and the ultimate good of his people. God is bringing in his kingdom through all these things. Nothing takes him by surprise. Indeed, he is the one who has foreordained whatsoever things come to pass. And my friends, he is still sending forth his Horsemen. The second observation is this. What are his purposes in doing so? What are his purposes in doing so? And particularly, particularly, for example, to his sending forth religious persecution. Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, to purge his people. To purge to see who really, who really is committed to him. And to put to the test. To put to the test. You say you're a follower of Jesus? Really? Really? Are you really committed to him? To put to the test. So to purge, to put to the test, and of course in general terms as we've looked at Uh, already today to protect against the combinations 
of nations so that they do not gain too great a strength in their war against his people. The Lord Jesus is doing all that. He's still sending forth his fiery red horse. And it may ride through this land. And my application of the day then is very simple. Where do you stand with him? Where do you stand with him? Are you committed to him? Do you love him? Are you really his servant? Maybe you're just playing games with him. Maybe you're just playing at church. Or are you really committed to him, even to the point of death? My friends, he is the only one in whom we can have hope. So we must fleet riding on his white charger. The one who is still sending forth his convicting arrows, convicting us of our sin, and convicting us of the truth of the gospel. May he be pleased to bless everyone here. Amen. Amen. Please stand for prayer. And our Father, we thank thee that our Savior is the one who is sovereign, who reigns over all. He is the King. We thank thee, Lord, that he has earned that right by means of his death, and that 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 coronation has been granted to him in his resurrection and his ascension to glory. So, Father, we pray that the Lord Jesus himself would give to us his grace and his mercy. We pray, Lord, that we might be fully committed to him, no matter what circumstance we may face, no matter what persecution we may have to suffer. We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst have mercy upon us and bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing as we turn on your Lord.